Hi, it's Leonard here and I have a quick but special note before we start today's interview. Do you know that most purchases are influenced by feelings and not facts? Research found that emotions drive over 95% of consumer decisions. So if you want to increase the sales of your CPG product, you must understand how consumers choose and buy better for you food or beverage brands. And this is exactly what we uncover in our new free ebook titled Cracking the Code, How Consumers Choose Healthy Food and Beverage CPG Products. This has six core insights that will help you better understand your customers so you can improve your sales velocity, whether in your retail or e-commerce platforms. Get a copy now by visiting thevineyardbc.com slash freebook. That's thevineyardbc.com slash freebook. Brandstar Goes Healthy features founders and CEOs of healthy food and beverage CPG companies who share their biggest successes, hardest failures, strategic learnings, and tactical tips so you can learn from them and help you avoid mistakes and instead succeed in building your own healthy food and beverage brands. If you lead a vegan, plant-based, organic, all-natural, functional, and other healthy food and beverage CPG company, then this show is for you. Hosted by Leonard Grape, founder and CEO of The Vineyard, the brand development company for the healthy food and beverage CPG industry. Hey everyone, it's Leonard here and you're listening to the Brand Start Goes Healthy podcast where we help better for you food and beverage CPG companies build stronger brands through first-hand stories and insights from successful CPG founders. Today, I'm joined by Isabel Steichen, co-founder and CEO of Lupi, a company that is making tasty, sustainable plant-based pasta and protein bars made from nutritious lupini beans. Isabel, welcome to the show. Hey, Leonard. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Before we get going, can you please tell us a brief background about yourself and what you do? Yeah, totally. I um, So I have lived in the States for about 10 years now. I actually grew up in Europe. I'm originally from Luxembourg, moved here in 2013. And professionally, I spent all of my career working in early stage startups. So the very first job was at a startup called Kitchen Surfing. It was an on-demand chef service that was basically sending chefs across the city from one place to the next, like cooking meals in 30 minutes. Um, and I was employee number six or seven at the time. Um, it was my very first job. So I was in my early 20s. And um, it was an amazing experience. It was really, it really gave me the excitement for startups and early stage company building. I loved how everything I was doing had a had a really direct impact on the business. Um, and I also loved how much I was learning every day. So it was my first job. And after that, I worked for a few other startups, also all early stage, all of those ones were in the tech space. So software companies, and I was always on the operations and then a little bit on the sales side as well. And then my personal life, I've developed a real passion for plant-based eating. I actually went vegan in 2013 when I moved to New York, um, you know, driven by personal, ethical, environmental, health reasons, all of the above, and um, spent a lot of time in my free time immersing myself in the plant-based food space. I got certified in plant-based nutrition by Cornell, actually had a podcast a few years back um, with my husband. It was called The Plantiful. We were interviewing plant-based change makers across different industries. And 
all of that led me to start this business because as a mm. consumer myself of plant-based foods, I saw that there was a lot of options, but most of them were highly processed and overly engineered. So really struggle with that. And then also there was no diversity in sources of plant-based protein. It was all soy and pea and very little in between. So that led me on this journey to launch Lupi. And I was familiar with Lupini beans growing up in Luxembourg. A lot of my friends were Italian and Portuguese and those beans have been eaten in those cultures for a long time. So as I was uncovering the benefits, which I can talk about more, yeah. um, I just saw a real vision to introduce this ingredient to the U.S. market. I'm, I'm really excited because there is so much to unpack there. And even later, and I'd like to circle back on your experiences working with the early stage startups. But I'd like to get this out first. It's my first official question that I ask everyone who comes onto the show. How did your brand start? When and where did you specifically get the idea to start Loopy? Yeah, honestly, probably dates back to 2017, which now feels like a long time ago. But at the time, I was still working for uh, at my last startup job. And um, I had already gotten to this conclusion that there was not a lot of diversity in sources of protein. And I knew of lupini beans. And so I started researching them. Um, I actually got uh, in touch with some growers in Europe that were growing lupini beans and some entrepreneurs. Um, that were using it in ingredient in products in Europe where they are way more prevalent and they're originally from. And I started learning about the nutritional benefits. Um, so the fact that they have the most protein among all beans, even more than soy, the fact that they are naturally low in carbohydrates, which again is really unique. Most beans, most legumes have a lot of carbs and we know consumers are looking for more protein and less carbs, which again, is hard to get on a plant-based diet. They're also packed with fiber, uh, which we know is so important for gut health and overall health. And then they have a whole host of environmental benefits. They're regenerative, fantastic for soil health because they're nitrogen fixers and very resource efficient to grow. So I saw all these you know, benefits and I just really saw a clear vision how this ingredient could play in the US market. Um, and I started working actually on some product ideas at the time. Mm -hmm. I was working on a jerky, a vegan jerky that was made oh. out of and then I also started making these protein balls in my kitchen. And then I got a food handler's license. This was all in my free time. I got a food handler's license and started making them in larger quantities. And I sold them to two stores down the street from me in Brooklyn when they were in a ball format. And, you know, it was kind of easy to get them in those stores and consumers were buying them. And so mm. I, I started getting some tiny, tiny early conviction that I was onto something. And Fast forward to 2018, I had this realization that I could never get this off the ground if I was working a 60 hour startup job mm -hmm. and trying to decide. And so I took a leap. I left my startup job and kind of not knowing, you know, how to do it, but I knew I needed more mental bandwidth to really focus on this idea to put all of my energy in it so that I could get it off the ground. And that's what I did. I left my job and I started working working on Loopy full time at, uh, in two thousand in late two thousand eighteen. And that's really amazing. And it's one thing that I always find astonishing among founders in general, and particularly within the CPG space. Like you see this problem in the market, and you really just want to try and solve it and offer something better, and even go all in. But I'm also always interested how the thought process 
happens when in, in that situation, like in your case, you were still working uh, for a startup. And then while you were doing some initial market testing, I suppose, selling down your street and all of those um, initial validation, but were there any particular criteria that you had to like at the minimum assess first before saying that, okay, I just want to go all in or is it the other way around that I can't really get this off the ground. So I really have to go all in. Let's see what happens where it fails or not, but at least I'm going to go all in. Yeah, I it was more the second version. And the reason for that was because I was working long hours and mm. felt like I had no time, but I also didn't have creative bandwidth because I was working so hard in this job that I liked and um, was committed to. But I felt like, you know how you need space sometimes to just think and ideate and come up with creative solutions when you're always working and and on something like it's hard to make that space. And so I knew that I needed that. And I had some conversations. I remember having a conversation with a really good friend of mine who has become a bit of a mentor um, who I met in my very first startup job. And she said to me, you know, Isabel, like you're working so hard. Imagine if you could put all of that energy into this mm-hmm. idea, what you could do. And I was like, wow, that's really encouraging. And then my husband, um, my, you know, partner, life partner, he, he was so supportive of the idea when I started talking to him about it. And he said, why don't we make a plan? We think about what are the financial implications. He happens mm. to be a financial advisor, so that doesn't hurt. Um, and the plan was, I'm going to leave my full-time job and I'm going to get some consulting work. So I'm going to get mm. some hours where I'm going to get paid. And then I'm, but I'm going to have way more time to really start thinking about this and coming up with uh, a real plan for Loopy, um, which at the time wasn't called Loopy, obviously. So that happened uh, in in end of summer 2018. And then crazy, crazy kismet. Um, I actually, a month after I left my job, I reconnected with a startup studio slash investor based in New York. And they knew me because I had done some work for them previously a few years ago. And Um, The CEO, Heather, called me and she said, hey, we're really interested in exploring the plant-based food space because we think there's something happening there and we know you're passionate and you know a lot about it. We've worked with you before. Would you come in and consult for us and do some research on the space, on the opportunities and start coming up with some business ideas? So I said, of course, because I was like, oh, this is kind of related to what I want to do. And, you know, it's 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 a way for me to pay my bills while I'm working on this concept. <laughs> and then I did some research for that. And a few months in, I was like, guys, actually, I have this idea for this other business, which at the time it was called Howl because Lupini Beans loop, comes from Latin, lupus, uh, wolf. So when we came up with this concept idea, howl, I'm so glad we didn't call it that, but anyhow, <laughs> that's what it was called. And they were super excited. They were really bought in. Um, and they, um, you know, they, they had some conditions around making an investment. One of them was to bring on a co-founder because I had no food and beverage background. I was a first time founder, even though mm-hmm. I had spent time in, in startups, it's first time starting a business. Um, but so it all kind of came together, which is really interesting. I, I think it's really interesting how the universe kind of sometimes makes happen when you're making the space for it. That's so inspiring. And I was smiling because it sort of brings me back during that time. And I also 
took that leap of faith to leave my 10-year corporate job and, and become full-time as a brand strategist and then start my own branding firm. What I did also was to make sure that I have one consulting gig ready so that as I try to get your company up and running, you'll have some backup. And, and it's really inspiring because you really cannot know what's going to happen, right? Until you go all in. And in your case, you saw that the universe is conspiring it. Uh, and and here you are now. But you also mentioned something about reconnecting with with sort of your friend and mentor who also happened to be um, in, in a VC or in a startup studio. Uh, I'm curious to ask like two things that I want to tackle in, in your previous statement. One would be, we know that CPG industry is a capital-intensive business, so at, at mm-hmm. the beginning, um, when you really want to like go all in some more and then grow it, how did you deal with your capitalization requirements? And I'll sort of fast forward the question, what's your perspective now on profitability? Because it's something that I've always encountered as a challenge among CPG founders. Totally. It is, it is one of the biggest challenges because it's a bit of a chicken or egg situation. I would say back in 2018, when I reconnected with a startup studio and they started being interested in the idea. I really wanted to get outside capital to fund this. I actually didn't know, I would say didn't understand yet how expensive it would be, but I knew it was going to cost some money. I came from software companies where if you're an engineer, you can build your product and you can change it and update it really quickly. Um, but I knew that's not the case with food, obviously. Um, And so I knew it was going to cost some money to make the first production run, to invest in the brand packaging. And I was not in a position personally to put up that capital. And so for me, it was really clear that I wanted to raise outside money from the start. I think it's very hard unless you have some sort of capital to get something in food and beverage off the ground. There's definitely options. You can get small business loans, you can get some credit lines, but honestly, when you have no sales history, it's really hard to get those or, you know, the interest rates look horrific. So it's hard. You could go, you know, if you have a wealthy friend, you can ask them for a loan at a better interest rate. I think today I would have some more creative ideas because I've learned so much about the industry, but at the time that was going to be my strategy. And what I think about profitability and what I always thought is it's so important to build the business, even when you take venture money in a way that it has a real clear path to profitability, not a, oh, you know, if I'm a billion dollar in sales, I'm Mm going to break it. But like, what does my product cost today in my very first production run? What is kind of, what is the increments that I can produce and where do I start seeing cost breaks? How much can I ask for my product? Who else is making money? What, you know, now I also know the ple- the pleasure of doing business with distributors and getting a bunch of chargebacks, which I was aware of, again, that would happen, but now I really know what that looks like. And so I think um, really being super disciplined and thoughtful about that is so important. It was always important to us, even pre-current time where now investors have really changed their approach and They want all of us to be profitable overnight. Um, I will say to entrepreneurs' defense, in food and beverage, it really depends what you're making. Um, I obviously am not familiar with all categories, but the categories that I'm playing in with bars and pasta is that you can have a good margin on day one, 
but you cannot have a great margin. And that's because your production, um, you know, unless you're launching with like Costco on day one, mm-hmm. but if you're launching small, your production cost is just so much higher and your packaging cost is so expensive when you order small quantities, at least for us, that's the case. So I think it's really important to be realistic also around it's it's going to be more expensive at the beginning, but it will come down in cost. And what is my plan to get there quickly? What what do I need to hit in terms of distribution and sales numbers to be in a place where my business is self-sustaining? Because that's ultimate freedom. You know, that's where I think we all want to get to, or at least that's where I want to get to. Yeah, thank you for sharing. That That's really important because I've also seen how, as you said, how expensive it could get. Uh, it's, it's going to be exciting if you expand your distribution, but that would also mean that you'd need more money for your inventory. Yeah. You'd have to have yeah. enough money to push for your marketing. And you got to cheat each account as, a, as, a, as an individual buyer and all of those sorts. And as you try to scale, obviously growth would require money. So profitability would be a chicken and egg. But what I'm, what I'm getting really is for you to have a clear understanding of your growth path, right? Be disciplined enough to know your financial projections because even if you yourself, and obviously your investors would want to be profitability right away. But what I've seen is it's just not the case in, in the CPG space, right? Is that what you're seeing also five years into the business, Isabel? I think if you, alcohol has a really great profit margins, you know, that's a, that's a space. Beverage in general, right? Yeah. But, well, beverage, I think it really depends. It really depends okay. on what you're saying. If you're making something with a bunch of superfoods in it, I don't know how good uh, that's right. You know, if you're selling four packs versus single cans, you're really, there's differences between profit margins. Um, But I would say it depends on the category that you're in. Again, I think you can start off with a good profit margin, but it's also kind of a dance. What's your price point, right? I can have like an 80% profit margin if I sell, you know, my pasta for, I don't know, $12, but am I going to sell anything at that price? So I think it's also doing some really good research and understanding where you're playing. Are you trying to be premium? Are you trying to be mass market? Where do you need to anchor your pricing to be able to also command velocities and sales? So because it's worthless if your profit margin is 80%, but you're not selling any units. So I think that's important too. Um, but again, it's exactly what you said. Like every account is different and being really as diligent as you can. And it's, it's very hard because you're kind of um, pasting together information. You know, we're a startup, not in a position where we're buying sales data yet. So we only have access to what's free, which is limited. I don't know my turns in every single account. I know them in my most important accounts, like the Whole Foods, because I have access to that data. I don't really know, you know, what's happening sometimes in the chargeback world. Because I mean, I can't really forecast it. That's what I'm trying Mm -hmm. to say. Sometimes I'll get random chargebacks for things that I didn't expect. So it's really about being diligent and gathering that information as quickly as you can and starting to build that into the model. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. I'm always chasing a better margin. Like, I'm, that's what I'm kind of, every time I get a break, I'm like, okay, where's the next one? Like, what, where else can I save in production costs to make more money when I sell my product? Yeah, thanks for sharing. You also mentioned that part of your your discussion when you were trying to raise capital was you wanted, you had to bring a co-founder and I've seen it both ways, right? So it it could have advantages and could have disadvantages. So I'm curious to ask, what has been your experience? I mean, what are your thoughts about having a co-founder as a CPG company? Yeah. um, I would 
would say personally, I'm a big believer in teamwork. So that's something um, I like working with other people that doesn't have to be a co-founder. It could be, we have some really amazing advisors that I feel like are part of the team, even though I don't see them every single day. I talk to them like weekly or bi-monthly. Um, so they, I don't feel like I'm doing this all on my own. Um, I did bring in a co-founder that was a, a suggestion of my, of the VC at the time they were going to write a check, but their condition was, I find someone who has food and beverage, um, industry. So I spent about three months um, talking to different people and um, ended up getting connected to my co-founder at the time and brought her into the business. Um, she has actually since stepped away from the business. So she was with the business for a while and has decided to, to move away from it. And I would say it's definitely was great to have a partner at the beginning, especially because I didn't know much about food and beverage. And she came from Pepsi, so she understood the industry really well. So learning from her directly about the industry was really helpful. Um, on the other hand, I would also say, you know, one shouldn't underestimate your own abilities, right, to learn and grow. I think not everybody needs a co-founder to get things off the ground. Um, some in hindsight perspective is it's really important to always discuss kind of expectations around the partnership and be critical about it, especially at the beginning when you're in like the honeymoon phase and really set up a structure around, you know, what if things don't go so well, like what's the plan? Um, so those are some thoughts that I have. I don't think there's like, you know, a better way to do it. I think it really depends and it's all about learning and sometimes partnerships can work out for a long time. Sometimes it's shorter. Um, I don't think, I don't think there's one right way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Isabel. Now, five years into the business, I'm curious to ask, I'm sure you've seen so many things already trying to get your company up and running and then getting some strides, but what have been some of the craziest moments that you've already encountered that made you say, how, how are we even going to make this work? Or on the flip side, was there any particular moment that made you realize, okay, Loopy is a brand that can really thrive? Yeah. So technically, so we launched a business in 2020. So even though I started working on it back in 2017 and 18 on the side, we didn't incorporate until mid-2019. And then we launched in 2020 which means we've been in market for about three years now. And um, the craziest thing really was when the pandemic hit because we launched in January and we were approached by Whole Foods in February and then the world shut down. Um, and then we, it took us two years to actually get into Whole Foods. So we were only selling online and that was insane. I mean, it was an insane time for everybody, no matter what you were doing, started building or not. It was just kind of the weirdest thing we've ever experienced, right? Like whoever thought this would happen in our lifetime. So that was crazy. And it was really scary. Um, it was really scary. But I, but I think kind of relatively quickly, I started thinking, well, you know, you never know what's going to happen in a business, right? I've only worked for startups. There was never stability and predictability in any environment I've worked in. So I kind of was like, okay, I'm going to treat this like another challenge that I would experience anyway in, in a startup and try to make lemonade out of lemons. And a great thing that happened there was that we were selling online and we actually started building really close relationships with our customers and got a lot of feedback on the product and ended up using a lot of our existing customers for our innovation work with it when we launched a pasta. So that's 
that was kind of a scary time. And then I think, you know, it's hard to say um, what's the moment when, when you saw something is really, something is, we're really onto something, but I would say we were exhibiting at Expo West earlier this year and, you know, the pasta line launched now about 12 months ago. So that was about six months into the launch of the pasta line. And we landed a really large retailer, um, which mm. I don't want to jinx it. It's all, it's all in progress and launching in Q1 of this coming year. But when that happened, um, I, I felt like, wow, that is, that is legit. You know, there's, there's, there's a buyer here who's looking to bring this in because it's fitting what she thinks is a real market need in her customer base. And so that's super exciting. Um, I wouldn't say it's like the, the one moment that makes me feel like, okay, we're fine. We're cruising now. Cause we're definitely not there, but it's a, it's real validation to, mm-hmm. to get a buyer from a large retailer excited about the product and willing to take a leap and invest in the brand. Congratulations in advance. And I'm, I'm going to be on the lookout on when you're going to be announcing that by next year. Uh, I want to shift our discussion a little bit, Isabel, to talk about CPG brand development, which I obviously love to be tackling in this podcast. As I've seen also that that's a, usually a critical success element for, for a product, uh, for any product at that. My question would be, how would you define Loopy as a brand? And what do you think is the role of brand relative to a company's growth or in your company's growth? Hey there, we're pausing a bit for a quick break. Most unsuccessful CPG brands don't have product problems. They have messaging and marketing problems. Your product quality is great, but have consumers learned enough about it? Your product tastes delicious, but are you driving product trials so they can taste it? Your product is healthy and functional, but have you built enough awareness about its benefits? If you feel you have a great product, but your sales say otherwise, then you need to move from unclear to powerful messaging, from weak to effective marketing. This is where we can help you through our four quadrants of CPG brand development. If you need some support, don't hesitate to reach out. Just head on to www.thevineyardbc.com. That's www.thevineyardbc.com. Now, back to the conversation. Um, it's so interesting. You know, I grew up in Europe and brand is so different in Europe, especially in countries like Germany. Consumers don't care so much about the brand. They care about the ingredients or if it's organic or not. So it's interesting. Brand is obviously so much more important to U.S. consumers. Um we did a lot of work around the branding of Loopy and we really think of it as a person, right? It's the little, it's, it's a bean. It's this queen bean that is um, fun and novel and a little bit of an underdog because, you know, it's this ingredient that's new to the market, but also really cool and unique and powerful because it is so nutritious and so powerful on the environmental side. So we think of it as a person. And then also one big insight that I got from research when I was doing this research with my investor a few years back was people do not like vegans. They think vegans are, you know, too serious and they take themselves too seriously and they're standing on a pedestal and they're preachy. And Luby is not, Luby makes vegan products only, but we're not, we're not only appealing to vegan customers, most of our customers actually aren't vegan. And so what was really important for us was to build a brand voice that is 
fun, a little self-deprecating, not preachy, doesn't take itself too seriously. And we actually ended up having an amazing brand manager at the beginning. Um, she, They ended up going to um, grad school if, uh, a year into working with us, but they had a startup comedy background. So they gave the brand some really fun initial um, uh. tone and voice. And that's something that we've continued to try to, um, you know, emulate. Um, yeah, so that's how we're thinking about branding from a voice perspective. And then obviously the packaging design for us, it was really clear we wanted to be fun and outstanding. And I think our design partners have done an incredible job, especially with the pasta. When you see it on shelf next to Barilla, it's like, oh my God, this is so different and really <laughs> captures your attention. So that's that's really exciting. That's great to hear. And it, it I found it interesting when when you said that it's it's different how people in the U.S. or how the U.S. market would perceive brands compared to the European market. But um, but what you mentioned is something that I've actually observed with your brand. So it, it's a really fun vibe. And then, you know, when when you compare it with other pasta or I, I would say other brands in, in your category, it's something that can, can really stand out. So um, thanks for sharing that, Isabel. A few more questions before we work towards wrapping up. In terms of growth, what are some of the strategies and, and tactics that you've done and you've seen as have really allowed you to drive momentum for your company? Yeah. So I'd say, you know, there's there were like two parts of or two versions of the business since we launched. And I'm sure there will be more versions as we continue to grow. But the first two years, 2020, 2021, actually also a part of 2022, we were only selling online. And because we didn't have a choice because retail was shut down for us at bars. We're not doing well. Um, the, the category is down by 40%. So retailers didn't even look at the category and it's already a competitive category to get in, in in the first place. So we're only selling online and we had limited resources. So we did, we did a lot of partnerships with influencers at the time, some stuff on YouTube that worked really well during the pandemic because there was such a captive audience, you know, of people in front of their screens all days. Which is so interesting because today it just doesn't work as well for us anymore as it did at the time. But we've also shifted our channel strategy and really focusing on retail. And obviously, in-store marketing is so different. Um, what we know works for us is, uh, you know, kind of the basic things like secondary placements in stores for the bars is working really well. You know, it accounts like Whole Foods where we have um, the product in the bar category and at checkout, our velocities are triple than accounts where we don't have that. So obviously more touch points with consumers, more occasions to purchase the product. So that's working really well. Demos and sampling is working very well for us because consumers, once they try the product, like it. And especially with pasta, I think that's important. It's hard to execute and expensive. So we're trying to be thoughtful about that. But when people try it and they're like, oh my God, this like, tastes really good and it's so much better for me that's the way to get people over the line. So those are some of the things that really work with conversion um, and driving driving growth. And then the other thing I would say is being thoughtful um, around what accounts we're actually can be successful in. So not every account is a good account for our bars. Not every account is a good account for our pasta. We have insights through some industry sales data, you know, we um, get guidance from some of our advisors, but sometimes you don't really know how a product will do in a certain account. You can make mm -hmm. assumptions, but you don't know until you sell. So kind of trying to be thoughtful and it's hard to know um, for sure, 
Um, and sometimes you have to take a risk, but really try to go after the accounts where you're thinking you have the best shot at reaching the right customer at this stage. Yeah. Because we're still emerging. We're young. A lot of people don't know who we are. So staying focused, maybe regionally, like we're doing a lot in New York, um, is is maybe a way to uh, kind of de-risk the account launch strategy a little bit. Yeah, th- this has been really insightful, Isabel, but I'd like to start working towards uh, the final part. So what I'll do would be, I'd, I'd want to do a recap of some of the highlights that I've gotten so far from this conversation. And then I'll ask the final question before we go to the last segment of the show. For, first one that really stood out for me was how your product is driven by by your personal, environmental, and ethical principles, which I think in this space not necessarily maybe for everyone, but I found that it's so much more effective and powerful if you have that deep uh, purpose of why you're doing what you're doing. And to me, what I also found interesting for you would be how you found your hero ingredient and became laser focused on using lupini beans and highlighting how it could be beneficial. And an important aspect of being a founder is for you to understand on certain moments when you should really go all in because I think you're right and this goes through probably to a lot of other entrepreneurs and founders. It's so difficult to run, build, and grow a company if you're just doing it part-time. So, But in your case, I think it's also necessary for you to be as practical as possible. So find your back backup plan and then make sure that you understand your financial situation. That's something that I wasn't able to do as, as detailed as, as I wanted it to be during my time. And I think the powerful inspiration in what you mentioned coming from your friend, I, I think, would be imagine you working hard for others as compared to you really giving your all, working hard day in, day out for your own idea. Uh, I think that's going to give so much boost to what you're doing because starting a CPG company, as I've seen from other founders, to say that it's tough, to say that it's difficult would be an understatement, right? So you really have to make sure that you have that that um, balance of what you're trying to achieve for yourself. Now, in terms of profitability, you mentioned quite a, a number of elements. So you have to understand like what are your product costs today? What are your increments uh, moving forward? How can you take advantage of your pricing, understanding your economics? And these things would have so many nuances and variables. But what I got from you would be you have to make sure that you try to be as disciplined and thoughtful about your financial situation, especially as you're trying to grow and when you're trying to bring in more money. But the general rule of thumb, and this is something that I've seen true as well to other founders, would be being an early stage company would always be generally more expensive. So try your best to start with high margin, but at the same time, you need to understand price elasticity in the market or category that you're playing in. Do you want to be premium or do you want to be mass market? But I love what you mentioned there that ultimately the bottom line is whatever you decide on, it has to be something that can command sales velocity. Because early on, you cannot enjoy economies of scale, but I got the sense from you that down the line, it's something that you want to be able to achieve. Because when you're working with smaller quantities, your production costs are higher, your packaging costs are higher. But hopefully as you grow bigger, then you can get much more benefit from economies of scale. And a few more things would be having a co-founder is not necessarily good or bad and you're right i don't think there's also like a rule of thumb but what i got as a principle from you would be just make sure that you're you're feeling not alone in doing this so whether that's you having advisors mentors working with a team 
being open with your spouse, with your family. It's really, really important. But if you do decide to get a co-founder, I'd also allude to that, that it's important that there's a clear structure and there's a clear expectations. And it's powerful when you mention, don't underestimate the capabilities that you have because you can actually never know until you're in that situation. So just make sure that you're also giving yourself some benefit of doubt. Um, and a few more things would be, in during the time of the pandemic, I can I can't even imagine how well the term that that's coming up in my mind would be heartbreaking or discouraging. Even that you have this opportunity to get into Costco only to be shut down because of the pandemic, but the way you de dealt with it was really just go with it. This are just this is just another challenge, and there's really no certainty and stability in whatever business you go in. So have that right mindset on how you deal with challenges. In terms of branding, what I got from you is the importance of finding your brand voice that's going to be resonating with your consumers. So I've written some articles where I'm trying to encourage, like even if you're a plant-based, even if you're a vegan product, you want to try to go with the flexitarian market. Um, and in your case, it's interesting that not even vegan would be your, your majority customers. Um, so at least that understanding would help you really thrive and find how you can personify your, your product. And then finally, in terms of your growth tactics, it's really understand how you face your channel strategy and taking advantage of the marketing dyna market dynamics. It's not easy to, to obviously discover right away, but in your case, in the first two years, because people are online, you were leveraging digital tactics, but you were also intentional to make sure that you're going into other channel strategy, particularly retail. But I want to also emphasize what you mentioned. You have to explore secondary placements and different types of in-store retail marketing because ultimately you want to be thoughtful with the accounts that you can succeed on and not just taking every opportunity that comes your way. Is that a fair collection of some of the things that you but mentioned yeah. and anything you add you want to add to sure. that? You're so good at this. Yeah, no, that's all. That's such a good summary. I feel like people just need to listen to these last few minutes to get all of the all of the nuggets. Um, no, that's a that's a great summary of everything. Yeah, no, thank you so much for being so generous. I, I think people would really learn a lot from from you. And I I think we could talk on and on, but uh, I want to now ask my final question, which I always prefer to be a bit more personal. This is my question: What's one thing that you've done for your business? that you've never thought you'd be able to do? Um, honestly, it's like so many things. And maybe not that I thought I wouldn't be able to do, but that I just didn't think I would ever do. I guess, you know, fundraising for my business, I had no background in that. And I closed most of our uh, investment funding on my own. Um, I, I mean, just... I, I don't know. It's not like one thing. It's just a constant like jumping and and tackling new challenges. Um, if I'm looking when I'm in it, it's hard to see uh, the trees from the forest sometimes. And then when I reflect back, I'm like, wow, yeah, we we have come a long way. Like we've built so much and um, we've really kind of put one foot in front of the other. And now we we've made all this progress. Um, so, yeah. I want to add like one more question. Is there anything that you've discovered about yourself throughout this journey, Isabel? Um, how much I love building businesses. I knew that I loved startups. I loved the environment, but I just have so much joy and fulfillment doing this. It's really incredible. I 
sometimes meet people that are like, oh, I'm tired. I would not do this again. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I totally would do this again. I would do it differently because now I know so much more and I'll probably hopefully do it better. But I just, I'm, I have so much joy for this. Like it gives me so much. And I think there's so many challenges, but I always find like the, the joy, fulfillment, learning and progress kind of fundamentally outweighs the challenges that I'm experiencing. And I think it's a, it's an incredible privilege to be able to build a business, especially something that you actually care about and spend your life doing that or spend a few years of your life doing that. And so I'm incredibly grateful for that opportunity. Amazing. I'd like us to go now to the last segment of the show, Isabel, which I call the finish line. It's essentially the lightning round where I have five questions that I want you to answer as concisely as possible this time. Are you game? Okay, let's do it. First one, name a characteristic that an entrepreneur must have to succeed. Resilience. Second, book or podcast that you want to recommend for entrepreneurs to read or listen to. I love how I built this. There's so many good CPG episodes on there. Um, I would say one of the most recent ones that I really enjoyed was listening to um, Andrew Abraham from Orgained, uh, talking about his story building the business while he was in med school after he recovered from cancer. So incredibly inspiring. Yeah, I'd probably take a note of that too. Thanks for sharing, Isabel. The next one would be, what is one thing that you feared the most as a founder? not trying something. I think it's it's not it's not about the fear of failure because I think that's way less scary to me. To me it's scarier to not take a risk, not jump in, not try something and then look back and say, "Man, I wish I would have tried this." Yeah, that's that's so powerful. That's going to hit a lot of people down there. Um then the next one would be if you're not an entrepreneur now, what do you think would you be instead? I, somebody asked me this question the other day too. So I picked up surfing um, two years hmm. ago and I wish this was something I learned when I was younger, but my parents were kind of very much against it, even though I used to go to um, a beach in Southern France for, for vacation where there's tons of surfing. Anyhow, I'm making very slow progress. Let's say I'm, I'm, I'm really not good at it. And I wish like if I wasn't doing this, I would probably be somewhere and, and actually spend some time in learning how to properly serve. Yeah, that sounds fun. And, and finally, I want you to complete this sentence, Isabel. Success is? Success is doing something that has a positive impact and brings you infinite fulfillment. Now, that's definitely a good ending for this, Isabel. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. You've been so generous and kind in sharing your story and insights. But before I let you go, can you please tell us where is the best place for people to learn about you and Loopy? Yes, absolutely. So on our website, getloopy.com, Loopy is spelled L-U-P-I-I, so two I's. Getloopy.com is a website and we're on Instagram, um, Getloopy. We have a TikTok and threads at Getloopy as well. Um, and thank you so much for having me. It was such a joy to be here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. We'll make sure to link those up in our show notes. Once again, Isabel, thanks for being here and God bless you. Hey there, CPG founders. Are you tired of trying to figure out what's really driving consumers to choose and buy better-for-you food and beverage CPG products? If you answered yes and want to get into the minds and hearts of your customers, then we have something for you. You should check out our free ebook, Cracking the Code, 
where you can find six core insights that motivate consumers to buy products like yours. This is available for a limited time only, so be sure to get your copy now. Go to your browser and type in thevineyardbc.com/freebook. That's thevineyardbc.com/freebook.